0: Well, um, I have to um, admit to you that uh, at about 5 o'clock this morning, my head popped off the pillow. Uh, Because I, even just this this week, I have been so excited um, about our time together today. Um, Oftentimes, um, you know, as as pastors, we study and, and we seek God and we look at his word and ask him, Lord, what do you have for me? And we just happen to be coming up on on a passage that um, and an idea that has meant more to me in my life with Jesus and my faith, probably over the past five to seven years than anything else has. Uh, And and so in a very real way, what I have the chance to teach this morning, um, I think in some ways is the reason I'm standing before you today. Uh, I I think that what we're going to talk about and what we're going to learn today from God's word um, has saved me in the pastorate. I think in a very real way, it's saved my faith in a very real way. It's preserved relationships. And the things that we're going to talk about today have really drilled down into every area and every aspect um, of my life, Um, because I'm a very sort of driven type A person. Um, and so that's a good thing in some ways, and that can be a really bad thing in some ways. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on in our time together. But uh, about five, five or seven, somewhere in that years ago, I was exhausted. I was exhausted in, in my faith. I was starting to wonder, God, if this is the Christian life, and this is as a pastor, if this is the Christian life, I'm not sure I want in because really I'm just living under a bunch of guilt and shame and regret, and I feel like you set the bar so high for me, God, and and I want to get there because I want to make you happy, but I just can't get there. And what we're going to talk about today was the thing that came along and just the chains for me and invited me to run and my hope and my prayer is that it would for you too uh, a few weeks ago uh, because winter is coming and unlike san diego you can't run for all 12 months of the year outside here so um we went and we got off of craigslist a treadmill and so um Imagine, if you will, uh, my wife and I loading a treadmill into our van. My wife, who's getting more pregnant by the day, if that's possible. Love you, baby. Um, We're picking up this few hundred pound treadmill, right? And we load it into our van. And then we load it out of our van when we get back to our house. And it sits in my garage for the opportune moment when my father or father-in-law come over for the next time. And I invite them to serve me. And help me get that bad boy down the stairs into the basement. <clears throat> it just so happened, though, that before one of my parents came over, my, one of my fathers, um, that uh, Brian, who goes to this church, came and swung by the house, and he was dropping off a table. And he had a guy who works with him, and they were together. And I said, hey, would you mind helping me out? Would you mind helping me uh, take this treadmill, this few hundred-pound treadmill, down a flight of stairs into my basement? It's sort of like helping somebody move a hide to bed couch, right? How do you draw that, draw that short straw? He graciously said yes. We got out a tape measure to measure if it would get in the door. And we decided it wouldn't. And so Brian says to me, we can take this thing apart. And I think to myself, if by we mean, we mean you, then yes, we can. Then yes, we can. And so he says, do you have some tools? And I go, Uh, I got a tool like here's a and so we got out this little set of tools and this wrench and we started taking the whole belt apart and we took the whole place that you run and we detached it and we got to this place where we were going to detach the arms of the treadmill and we undid six screws and what we found out after about 40 minutes of work and sweat and labor that the only thing that we had to do to get this thing apart was undo Those six screws. And so we had done 40 minutes of work to get to the point where we realized we only needed to do about two. We had put a ton of effort into the wrong thing. I think a lot of us live our Christian life in the same way. We pour a ton of energy. And we pour a ton of time. And we pour a ton of regret into the wrong thing. Into things that God never called us or invited us to pour our time and to enter in our energy into. And I think what I want to do this morning with us, what I want to do is just try to refocus us on what are the things God has called us to put our time and our energy and our emotion and our heart into. Because sometimes the things that we pour our time and energy into yield the things that God ultimately wants for us. But if we pour our time and energy into the things that God wants for us and focus on those things, it may lead us down a road that we don't necessarily want to go. I want us to work at the right things as South Fellowship Church. Because if we're willing to work, quote-unquote, at the right things, what we're going to find is freedom. And if we work at the wrong things, what we're going to find is ourselves exhausted and guilt-ridden and defined by shame and regret. That's why, as I've prayed for you this week, I can't tell you how much I want this for you. I can't tell you how much I want this for you. Open to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. We're going to look at one verse today. And if you've been here over the last few weeks, you go, oh, praise God, finally a short sermon. No promises. No promises. We're going to look at one verse because it's a verse that in many ways functions as the hinge between the first half of the book of Ephesians and the second half of the book. Now, you'll remember that the first half of the book is primarily doctrinal. It's primarily, here are the things that are true about God. Here are the things that are true about you. There's very little as far as the way of application, direct application goes. There's a command in the first half of the book of Ephesians. It's remember. That's the only command. That's the only verb that's in the indicative in the Greek. It's, it's just remember. And if you go back in and look at the way that that's used in the context of Ephesians chapter 2, it's remember that you were separated from God. Remember that you were separated from his promises. Remember. That's the command. Okay. The second half of the book is full of commands. It's full of very applicable instruction on how we are to live. Now, the reason I'm spending a whole verse on Ephesians chapter four or a whole a whole Sunday on one verse is because if we miss this verse. If we miss this idea and this concept, then all of the second half of the book of Ephesians can be things that we pull up our bootstraps and try to do. But if we get it, if we get it, they bring freedom to our soul. Um, Needless to say, I want your freedom. Here's the way this verse reads. I, therefore, quick time out. Anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, you should ask yourself the question. What's it there for? Great. We're doing good. We're doing good. Great question. I'm glad you asked it. What's it there for? We'll get there. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord urge you i implore you i beg you i commission you he's gonna invite them to do something this is the first time that this type of language is used in this letter and so for the very first time paul says i've laid a foundation that now i'm gonna invite you to jump off on i urge you as a prisoner of the lord i I beg you i implore you to walk to walk to to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you have the NIV, it's a calling to which you've received. But, but what Paul's going to say, what he's saying in this passage is, All right, in light of all that God has done, live in this way. Live in this way. Now, it's important for us because we're going to wrestle with this idea because uh, you could read this and go, OK, let's, let's buckle down and let's do it. Let's let's live it out, live out the calling. The only problem with that is what the calling is. Right. So, so let me just walk us through bird's eye view in two minutes, what the calling is, because he's just talked about the calling for three chapters the calling is that you're blessed. It's part of the calling. The calling is that you're chosen. The calling is that you are adopted. The calling is that you're forgiven, spotless, blameless, holy before the throne of God. The calling is that you have been called his child. The calling is that the Holy Spirit lives inside Of you. The calling is that you've been redeemed by grace, offered newness of life. The calling is that you've been made alive, raised from death to life, that where sin used to bind you, now grace frees you. The calling is that we get to live together as the body of Christ, loving each other, walking with each other, supporting each other. The calling is that together we get to reflect the fullness of God. The calling is that grace becomes the fuel by which we live every day of our life. The calling is that there's a well of hidden strength that's available for you. The calling is that God lives inside of you and he is able to do far more abundantly than you could ever think or imagine. Now, now for us to go and then say that the calling is that we pull up our bootstraps and try to do something would be a little bit weird, wouldn't it? I mean, because he's talking right here in this verse, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The the calling that he just talked about in the first three chapters. See, walking in our calling is a whole whole lot more about knowing who we are than it is about doing anything. And I used to think, God, I, I, I need to be worthy of your calling in the sense that I need to earn something or I need to, I need for you. I need to behave in a way so that when you look at me, you don't go, man, I really regret choosing Ryan Paulson. And that's where this passage and this idea starts to get potentially dangerous is when we start to do our best to earn what God has freely given. The the word worthy in the Greek is the word axios, and it means um, to be fitting of or reflective of. It doesn't mean that you live up to it. It doesn't mean that you earn it. It simply means that you embrace it and allow it to define you. That's what that word means. So that if we embrace fully the invitation of God to be chosen, holy, blameless, right now, currently, before the throne of God, to be people who breathe grace, who are defined by grace, if that becomes fitting of us, then it starts to change the way that we live. It's not try to earn and try to justify why you've been justified. Which I think can subtly become... So much of the way that we live as followers of Jesus. Let me use an illustration for it with you. Um, well, actually, first, if you want to follow along, and can I encourage you, um, please, if you just just jot down these four simple things that we talk about today, because um, I think that they might just have the uh, they might just change the way that you look at faith. The calling of Christianity simply is to become who we already are. Your sanctification, your life with Christ, your path to becoming more holy, to becoming more like Jesus is you embracing the calling and starting to live it out. It's you becoming who you already are. Let me, let me illustrate it for you. I lived three out of my four college years um, with 11 other guys. Praise be to God. I mean, to say that I was entrenched in bachelordom is an understatement. I mean, we would use Frisbees as plates at times. We would use paper towels as, a, as toilet paper. I mean, if things got there. Uh, we, we would hide in closets for hours, waiting for the opportune time to jump out and scare someone. Now, uh, on... In July of 2001, I asked Kelly Hester to be my bride. On June 1st of 2002, we were married. Just in case you're wondering, that's a long engagement. wouldn't suggest it, a little bit too long. We got married. On June 2nd, I woke up as a husband. Now, I had a lot of residual bachelordom in me. I mean, it didn't happen overnight that I stopped using a Frisbee as a plate at dinner. In fact, in fact, Kelly, our first fight, some people try to spiritualize it, called an argument. It was a fight. Our first fight as a married couple was Kelly coming to me and saying, hey, our neighbor is selling a table. It has four chairs. It's $200. It's really nice. And I said, $200. Do you think we're made of money? And she, with tears in her eyes, says, Ryan you're not living with your roommates anymore. <laughs> you're a husband. And I'll tell you what, it took me a while. It took me a while to embrace my identity. And there's still things that are, are sort of in progress. But I'll tell you what, how well I do at being a husband doesn't determine whether or not I am what I am Kelly's husband. Same, same thing you go for parenthood. I can remember driving back from the hospital having zero clue what to do as a dad. Most terrifying 10 minutes of my life were the drive from the hospital with Ethan in the backseat of the car to home. Most terrifying walk ever was from the door, trying not to, hands not to shake too much, walking in the threshold of the door and going, what now? <laughs> if, you've been, if you're a parent, you've been there. But... I was a dad. I was a dad. How good of a dad. Had zero bearing on whether or not I was one. I was one. I think a lot of you are trying to earn your identity as a follower of Christ. And he's going, You, you, you are my child. You don't have to you don't have to earn that. You you are. And, and so many of us are held captive by identities and and things and lies that we believe in our heart that are no longer true about us. You see, our new way to walk and the manner worthy of the calling, the invitation that God has given us flows out of a new heart and a new affection that he's given us. and, And growth happens and I follow Jesus fully as I allow this new heart and this new affection to take root in my soul and start to live it out. It doesn't happen as I pull up my bootstraps and say, I'm going to do this. He says, "You're, you're already that. You already are. And what I want to do is spend the rest of our time this morning talking about some of the internal workings of our soul that actually make it possible for us to live under the weight of the gospel. Because like I said, I think so many of us, myself included, often get that wrong and we get it mixed up and we start to live lives that are defined by shame and guilt when God invites us to so much more. So the rest of the book is going to say, all right, when the gospel gets in us, this is how it gets out of us. It redefines our marriages. It redefines how we parent. It redefines how we talk to each other. It redefines how we do community. But I just want to take a Sunday and ask the question, well, how does it get in us? How does it get in us? And how do we know if maybe we're working at the wrong things? So these next four points, ideas that I want to share with you have completely shaped or reshaped my Christian life. We grow into our true identity when we pour our energy into learning to trust God rather than trying to please Him. My hope is that when you first hear each of these things, you might think that I'm a heretic. Because it means that you're, going, you're wrestling with it. Because you're going to go, hey, aren't there passages that talk about us pleasing God? Oh, absolutely there are. No doubt about it. I just want to press on how you actually do that. And I would argue that you don't do that. You don't please God. We don't please God by trying our best to please God. It's a byproduct. God being pleased with us is a byproduct of something else it's a it's a byproduct of learning to trust him learning to cling to him learning to submit to him do i want to hear god say one day well done good and faithful servant no doubt about it no doubt about it but the road i walk down that one day hears him say that is clinging to the cross of Jesus every single day, not trying my best to work on pleasing him. And you see, here's the deal. We, we've had these two sort of paths right in front of us. One says, all right, try your best to please God. Pour your energy into pleasing him. Pour your thoughts, your time your into pleasing God. And, and let's just explore where that goes. I mean, let's say that you're different than me and you're successful in that. Well, then, if you're successful and you think, I have pleased God, well, then you're, you're left prideful, right? You're left, you're left arrogant. You're left going, I did it. I did it. I accomplished it, what I set out to do, pleasing him. He is pleased with me, and man, you should be too. Uh, Best case scenario. Worst case, we live under this shadow of fear. We had this ideal in mind of what God wanted for us and what God asked of us, and we have this, this um, prevailing conviction that we didn't add up to it and that he's going to get us. If it's, not, if it's not fear, then it's guilt. Then it's guilt of knowing what the calling was, knowing what the invitation was, knowing what the expectation was, knowing what the line was and knowing that I just didn't add up no matter how hard I tried. And you see what happens to us is the longer we live under guilt, the longer we live under that realization that what was expected of us and and what God wanted of us that we didn't add up to it, it starts to we, we embrace that guilt and then it starts to turn on us and it starts to define us. And when guilt starts to define us and regret starts to define us, our lives are marked by shame i can't tell you how many followers of jesus i've met who the the two things that define not just them in general but their relationship with god are guilt and shame because we just haven't added up to what we thought his expectation was and our goal and what we were clinging on to and what we were focusing on was I want to please you. I want to make you happy. And that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that if that's our focus, if that's what we're pouring our energy and our time into, it has the ability to crush us. It it almost did me. Um, guy, an author named Sky... Jeff and I relate to a story about holding a series of meetings with some college-age students. This little article says the topics ranged the spectrum from doctrine to hell to dating, but each conversation had three rules. Be honest, be gracious, be present. On one night, the students wanted to discuss habitual sins. And although they struggled with a variety of sinful behavior, they all agreed on one thing. God was extremely disappointed with them. My parents were students at a Christian college in the early 90s when a revival broke out, they said. They were on fire for God, and here I am, consumed by sin day after day. Often through tears, many students shared similar stories about how they believed that God must be disappointed in them. After listening to their stories, Jeff and I asked, How many of you were raised in a Christian home? Every single one of them raised their hands. How many of you grew up in a Bible-centered church? Every single one of them kept their hands in the air. Shaking his head in disbelief, Jeff and I said, you've spent 18 or 20 years of your life in church. You've been taught the Bible from the time you could crawl. You attended Christian colleges, but none of you have given the right answer. Not one of you said that in the midst of your sin, God still loves you. And you see, when our focus our energy is poured into I want to make god happy that's not a bad goal but when when that is it i think we can end up in the exact same way see here's the bottom line when i'm focused on just pleasing god which i know sounds ironic to hear me say when i'm when that's my focus when that's my energy really i'm my focus and I'm where my energy goes. I read a quote in a book recently that said, increasingly, the path to pleasing God seems to be about how I can keep God pleased with me. So what's a different path? See, it's very different to pour our energy into trusting God than it is to trying to make him happy with us. See, trusting God. Is different because it it makes me cling to God. Not to me. It takes the focus on what? God, what can I do to make you happy? And it focuses my attention back on the one who is faithful, who is trustworthy. I think a lot of us, we want to change the song. Instead of great is thy faithfulness, it's great is my faithfulness. And instead of focusing our energy and our time and our thoughts on being faithful, I think what God's inviting us to do is be faith-filled. Those are two very different things. Those are two very different things to cling to. One is to try to do the right thing. The other is to realize that God has already done the right thing. I love the way that the book of Hebrews puts it when it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But if we live lives of faith, he's pleased. It's a moment-by-moment decision to cling to him, to cling to the cross. We don't obey Jesus out of fear. We live confident in Jesus' provision for us. And friends, that will transform you. That will change you. My motivation becomes all that he has done for me, not all that I must do for him. It sounds an awful lot like Romans 12, 1 and 2 that says, therefore, in view of looking back towards his unbelievable great mercy towards me, I offer myself. I offer myself. All right, I got. A lot of us I'd like to say about that, but I realize you guys want to get to dinner, so. (laughs) Second thing that transforms the way that we walk, that transforms the way that we live, is we rely on the providence of grace, not the pace of our progress. Told you I was type A. I told you I was driven. I like to know, hey, here's the goal and here's how we're tracking and if we're not tracking the right way, then we got to change something. And if we are tracking the right way, then high-fives all around. May even wrap some spiritual language around it. Praise God. Right? I like to know how things are going. I, um, after having a, a decent year, my junior year of being a baseball player, I sat down, and this is before Internet was prevalent and in every household, I sat down and I wrote to over 140 different Division I colleges, telling them why they wanted me to come pitch for them. I mean, I, when I set my mind to something, I'm the kind of guy that says, I will cling to that. I will claw for it and I will get it done. In a lot of areas of my life, it served me okay. Spiritually, it almost crushed me. In my, in my walk with Jesus, it almost ended me because that bar was so high that accomplishing any checklist I could even come up with never got to it. And I spent so much of my energy and so much of my time trying to make progress and trying to achieve all that God, all that I thought God was asking me to do. And I put the focus on me rather than on him that's going to be a huge theme in all of these but what the bible actually teaches us is that we make progress as we, and we start becoming the people that god is inviting us to become we start bearing fruit as the bible teaches as grace presses on us with more and more weight not as we get out from under the weight of his grace And his mercy, which is often what we think we achieve to a certain point and we need less and less and less grace. But spiritual maturity is the exact opposite. So if you are in a place where you need Jesus this morning, take a deep breath. You're exactly where he wants you to be. You're exactly where he wants you to be. And we focus so much of our time and so much of our energy of, am I achieving the checklist? Am I becoming the person God wants me to become instead of clinging to his mercy, clinging to his grace, realizing we never grow beyond it. We never grow beyond it. But when we think we do, we miss some of the great blessings that he wants to bestow on us. I love the way that the book of Colossians in chapter 1 says it we always thank god the father of our lord jesus christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in christ jesus talking about the colossian church the church at colossae and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven catch this part of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing how do you how do you bear fruit You sit under the weight of the gospel. That God in his mercy and in his grace reached down for us. This isn't just talking about people coming to know him. It's talking about you, follower of Jesus, growing in him. The way that you grow in him is as you cling to grace, as you remember that you're a person that's in need, that you are in progress and that he is being good to you in the midst of it. And so we walk in the fullness of all that God invites us to when we rely on the providence of grace, not the pace of our progress. And so when sin creeps up in our life, we, we see it as sort of those dashboard lights on your car, right? This says check engine. Some of us like to like to drive past the check engine light. Some of us like to, you know, if you hear a a little tick in the wheel, my solution, you just crank that radio, baby. (laughs) See, there's going to be things, sin is seen as a warning light in our life. Not even necessarily something that we try to work on, we'll get to that in a second, but something that reminds us of God's grace reminds us that in the midst of it he's still good that his provision is there in fact ironically ironically check this out this is what paul says but god says to paul my grace is sufficient for you for my what's that word power is made perfect in weakness and i think for so long i was attempting to be so strong that I didn't need his grace. And the irony was, I missed out on the power of the gospel in my life. I missed out on the power of God, the transformational power of God saying to me that in the midst of the struggle, I'm still for you, Ryan. That in the midst of the struggle, I'm still with you. That in the midst of lack of progress, my grace is sufficient. And ironically, when we realize that and when we cling to his grace and his mercy, it's where we actually and when we actually make progress. I think a lot of us play this church game where we're so busy doing that we're too busy to just admit that we're thirsty and that he's satisfied. We walk in a manner worthy when we remember that we have been, have been, have been, past tense, done, accomplished, signed, sealed, delivered. Have been made righteous rather than trying to work on our sin. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting some, hmm? looks to you from you isn't the pastor supposed to tell you you got to get out there walk out those doors and and try to live as sinless as you can come on church you can do it you can stop sinning and, and we pour our energy and we pour our focus into that and all it yields at least all it yielded in me was this sense of shame because i'm not there Here, this just in If you are expecting me to be perfect, I hate to let you down. There may be other churches where there's a perfect pastor. Good luck. (laughs) Go find him. But here's the deal. Here's my commitment to you. I will cling to the righteousness of God that is mine in Christ. I will cling to his righteousness. I will allow it to work in me. I will allow it to move in me with the conviction that it will change me. I love this passage in the book of Romans because it puts a timestamp on it for us. And we've talked about it before, but I just want to point it out to you again, that there is therefore when now, Hey, guess what? When you open up your scriptures and read this, this, this portion of the book of Romans tomorrow, it's going to read now, then also. And guess what it means? guess what it means is that right now you stand holy and spotless and blameless before the throne of God. That if you were to die this moment, he would say to you, I loved you. I I love you. I'm pleased with you. Welcome to my family. You're my child. You are holy, spotless, blameless, perfect because of the blood of Jesus right now today. Right now today. And see, if I'm looking to myself for my justification, I start to work. But when I look to him for my justification, I start to rest. I start to rest. I start to believe that he is good and that he is for me. See, my life in Christ is not about what I can do to make myself worthy of his acceptance, but it's about daily trusting What he has already done to make me right with him. And in so many of our accountability groups, we just talk about our sin and we talk about our failure, and we wondering why we wonder why we keep talking about it day after day, week after week, year after year. Signal lights, it's not working! And maybe, just maybe, if we were to take a step back and rest in the fact that although, although I am not the person, the the finished product of all that God's doing with me and in me, I am still holy, blameless, perfect, complete in Christ. Now see, that conviction, remember, what you believe about yourself drives the way that you live. That conviction will change the way you live that you live, the way that you act, the way that you move, the way that you breathe, but trying to work on it won't. won't. I love the way that Jesus says it in the book of John, where he says, abide, abide in me. John 15, 5, just says, says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears fruit. That's funny. Because we thought we bore fruit by trying really hard. We thought we bore fruit by getting all of our ducks in a row. But what Jesus says is, no, focus on clinging to me, abiding in me. Believe I'm enough. Jesus, likewise, says, and I love this because what oops, says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, I love this because he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. See, resting in Jesus is not passive. It's not lackadaisical. It's not drifting. It's not sitting with our hands back up in the air saying, I have no control over this. It's working on the right thing. And working on the right thing is coming to him. Coming to him. And he says, My burden is light. Hey, so here's the truth of the matter, friend. If you walk out of these doors if you walk out of your quiet time, if you walk out of any encounter with Jesus with a burden that is anything other than light, you haven't met with Jesus. His desire for you is not to walk in guilt and shame. It's to realize you are the redeemed. See, the teachers of the law wanted to heap law on people and rules on people, and Jesus said, come to me. My burden's light. My burden's light. The book of Galatians, I love the way that, I'm running out of time, but I love the way that Paul says this. He's like, listen, are you so foolish? It's a really light book. Have you begun by the Spirit? Have you begun by trusting in the grace and the providence and the mercy of God? Have you begun by what God can do and now you're trying to be perfected in the flesh? See, when we try to manage our sin, we lose sight of the Jesus that has already conquered it when you try to manage your sin, when you try to work on it and correct it, we lose sight of the Jesus that has already conquered it. And when you believe he's conquered it, you start to live a little bit differently. I'm not saying ignore your sin. I'm saying allow it to press you to God rather than away from him, And believe with everything in your being that the cross, 2,000 years ago, when all of your sin was future sin, paid for even that. And then, after that, enjoy fellowship with God rather than trying to earn his approval. Here's the, here's the application. Live in the present, friends. You can only experience the presence of God when you live in the present. You can't experience his presence in hindsight. You can't experience it in the future. You simply experience it right now. Right now. And you see, what guilt and shame want to do for you is firmly plant your feet in the past. And you can live there You can live your whole life in regret. And we wonder why we can't experience the presence of God because we're not present. And and see, the other way it goes is we live with anxiety. We assume future failure that robs us of right now, today. And you see what Jesus' invitation to us is. Live right now under the conviction that he's here and that he's for you. The entirety of your life, as we said last week, and the way that it's defined whether or not you'll live a full life is whether or not you can receive love from the throne of God. What if we really believed that he was here? What if we really believed? What if you really believed this week that he is here? And we didn't try to qualify it by Well, I've done this and this and this this week, so it must mean that we're separate from him. You see, I think we're really good at drawing the diagram, right? You've seen the diagram where you're on this side and your sin has separated you from God and God's on this side and the cross covers the diagram. And we can make it for people and we can show them why they need to trust Jesus. But we have very little practical application of the diagram, That He, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our striving, in the midst of our longing, in the midst of it all, is with us and for us. I dare you to believe it this week. Instead of trying to earn His approval, to enjoy His presence. To enjoy His presence. Not when you get it all cleaned up he never will because he never will but to enjoy it in the midst of the journey I spent a lot of my life thinking that God was disappointed with me yeah that's not really a God you want to spend a lot of time with is it I mean you can sort of dutifully say all right I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to serve and I'm going to pray, but I really believe the God I'm praying to is upset with me, disappointed in me, that when I pray somehow uh, on his ethereal throne, he's going, Paulson again. But man, when I believe, as the Bible says that he delights in me, that he's for me, that, he, that he's forgiven me, that he's adopted me, that he finds pleasure in me, that he has power for me, that he has redeemed me, that he calls me his own, man, I can't help but want to run to him. I can't help but want to run to him. For those of you who have been held captive under the chains of religion that says God is for you when, and He loves you if, and He's pleased with you when. Please, this morning, my prayer is that you would be freed to know that right now, in the midst of whatever, if you're clinging to the cross, you're wholly blameless. He's for you, and allow it to work in you, allow it to define the way that you walk. May we live lives of the fact that we are called and adopted and chosen and forgiven and loved by the God of the universe. You're called to it. You're called to it. And my prayer is that you would live in that freedom. Jesus, we love you. We love you.